Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Mind Body Connection with me, your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Today I'm interviewing the extraordinary Barry Oaken, who has three professorships, all at Portland, Oregon University. Uh, He's got a professorship in neurology at the School of Medicine, behavioral neuroscience at the School of Medicine, and biomedical engineering at the School of Medicine. He's also got a PhD and is in charge of the Oregon Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Neurological Disorders. It's a research area they're looking at. Uh, new approaches for the mind-body connection and alternative and complementary approaches. So he has a wealth of experience uh, doing lots of really interesting research and it's going to be a fascinating conversation because he's someone who's got a lot of straight sciences, so biomedical engineering, uh, PhDs, and also has been delving into the the world of the mind-body connection for some time. He wrote a seminal paper about 10 years ago about um, the state of play and placebo studies um he's also going to be talking about some of the other specialities so one of his interests is is very much in complementary and alternative and integrative medicine and the mind-body connection um and specifically stress and resilience and alzheimer's disease the causes and, and potential treatments for it so lots of stuff to talk about with him and because we're recording at the time of the start of the coronavirus uh, outbreak um, pandemic uh, we're going to be asking him a little bit about if he has any pointers around that as well as pointers around preventing Alzheimer's or anything that he can help us with with uh, this this vast array of, of information that he has at his fingertips. So I hope you enjoyed listening to uh, Professor Barry uh, Oaken as much as I've enjoyed interviewing him. Let's begin. So thank you very much, um, Barry, for, for joining me on this podcast, uh, talking about the mind-body connection. I've got a number of questions I'd like to put to you. Um, uh, about your experiences having worked in this field um, and you know I know quite a lot about you by having googled you and, and looking at your work over the years but uh, very briefly you've got at least three professorships in neurology behavioral neuroscience and biomedical engineering and you're based in Oregon and uh, in the wonderful Portland so thank you very much for taking the time uh, to join us here today I'm going to start off with a question I I always kind of start with which is this is about the mind-body connection specifically we, we can talk about the mind and we can talk about the body all those things are, are also good to talk about but we're very interested in how these two entities uh, interrelate um, so I guess we start with what for you how would you define or describe the mind-body connection uh, well coming from a neuroscience perspective so I I think of the brain being the seat of seat of it all um, and so that is uh, that is both the mind and the body in some sense. And so we're just talking about how the, uh, in some sense, how the, ex, you know, how the, how the brain interacts with the rest of the body in terms of, uh, you know, be it stress responses or immune responses or, you know, various things that, it, and how various things that it has output, output signals to. And then obviously the input is coming in from the outside and, the input coming in from the outside is very biased by our brains. I mean, so the same person, uh, two different people can see the same event and will perceive very different things. And so that's part of the mind-body connection also because your your brain is sort of 
pre not pre-wired, but has a, all this years of learning, and so it has its own way of looking at things. That's a very loose answer, by the way. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's good, because the next question we kind of follow up with is, is it reasonable to even describe the mind and body as separate and therefore needed connecting, or are, do we see them as part of some con continuity? What's your position on it? Are mind and body separate? So conceptually, it's okay to think of them as separate, but it's all, you know, from my perspective, it's all the brain. And, but, but there's some things you can't, you know, you can't talk about even language, particularly, you know, in terms of neural basis, you know, in terms of specific, you know, synapses firing, you know, some things are just too complicated at this, at our level of description at this point. So it's useful conceptually to think about something like the mind, but, but the mind is, is just some aspect of the brain. It's just a complex, uh, feature of the, of the brain system. And I think the the point you made earlier as well about, you know, two people experiencing the same event will process it, give it different meaning, basically, based on their experience, their expectations, you know, what they perceive in it. And that, as soon as we move into that, we're, we're into a very interesting territory where the signal, the input, which may be, you know, identical in both people, is processed in different ways and therefore has a different neurological footprint different neurotransmitters different physiology occurs as a result of the the same input being experienced by both people at that point i'll kind of we talked about this on some of the other podcasts about doing science in in labs with test tubes makes lots of sense you know where you had one you know one substance and another and you'll get the same result as soon as we move into the human body with its perception whether we call it consciousness or, or processing all bets are slightly off aren't they as to how how those signals are processed and what what we do um so your background is fascinating because you've got a lot of um the neuroscience neurology also engineering uh, how, how come engineering's in that for you biomedical engineering how does that fit in with your neuroscience so i was a math major undergraduate in college i was a math major and um, when I decided to go to, you know, medical school and, and do neurology, I got interested in sort of physiologic analysis, and I chose EEG. So that was sort of my first uh, attempt at sort of getting some kind of measurement of brain function. And so EEG does require a fair amount of signal processing, and so I always have been interested in, given the math background in EEG, was, you know, looking at this kind of signal processing. So that was the aspect of engineering. Um, and then more recently, I pursued it by uh, my midlife crisis was getting a PhD in system science. Um, so I uh, wanted to learn more. I had the opportunity to sort of uh, do some more learning. And so I took a lot of courses in more uh, signal processing, machine learning, and other, and system science, actually. So to have better ways to think about the uh, brain and physiology so you've got a very kind of hard science background there with your maths and then also doing a phd in system science and all that kind of stuff and then you've also got an interest in complementary and alternative medicine which some people would go well how did that happen <laughs> what's, yeah, what's so going was, on there <laughs> yeah that was an interesting one so i i had a friend in portland who sort of uh introduced me to yoga in the late this must have been the late 90s or something like this. And I just 
started going to class, and I just really thought it was very uh, positive, uh, positive experience, both you know, body and mind, whatever you want to talk about it. But it was just, uh, I thought it was very positive. And then the opportunity came because the NIH, our funding, national funding agency, in some sense, for research, um, created a new institute or a new center for complementary medicine, and so. I decided to pursue that, so I started doing, you know, research with, you know, with funding in, in late ni 1999, actually, um, and I was pursuing yoga, actually, research was my first step into it, but the, this, the first grant, though, was a center grant, so I did interact with other people. I was interested in yoga, and looking at yoga for stress reduction and multiple sclerosis and older adults, and so that was, you know, sort of more in line with my thoughts, but I also interacted with you know, School of Acupuncture, Oriental College of Medicine here, naturopaths and chiropractors at that time. So I sort of uh, get got some understanding of what they were doing, and you know, just collaborated with them and were interacting with them. So that was my my educational experience and introduction. So back, uh, yeah, so I'm mean, 20 years now. I've been doing uh, you know, complementary and integrative medicine. They used to be complementary and alternative medicine, and then they renamed their institute and complementary integrative medicine. It was just they wanted to take alternative away from there, and those were many. Lot, those were even significant discussions. Uh, you know, some of these national and international meetings. But it was uh, there. There is this push to sort of integrate these complementary approaches. What used to be called, you know, complementary alternative, but integrating them into more conventional me medical treatment. I guess. Well, I think with the mind-body connection, certainly some of the people we've been talking with over the last few months, it's clear that it opens up these very interesting questions about uh for instance common factors you know the idea that there are specific factors from the intervention and then there's a whole range of other stuff that may be having an effect whether it's the color of the pill or the niceness of the practitioner or the uh, the nice color on the wall in the surgery and how those things have to be taken into account because they do have an impact and certainly the placebo studies was just one of the areas I, I came to your work from was you, you wrote a really fascinating kind of paper about the state of the research into placebos a few years ago. Um, so yeah, a really interesting mix of your complementary science uh, <laughs> biomedical engineering side, very interesting position to find yourself in. So as you've kind of wandered around this uh, mixed field of endeavor uh, and particularly referencing the mind-body connection what for you is is the most interesting paper that you've seen that you think oh that's a really um that's a really seminal or important piece of work that i would direct people to if they want to know a bit more about uh the field or this is a kind of very particularly interesting paper is there anything for you stands out that's an interesting question so the uh from the from understanding the, the sort of underpinnings of placebo effect is the uh, uh, is the group in Turin, Italy. So Benedetti sort of started it and sort of uh, you know, but he has a group of people there and they've all published some major papers in it. Um, you know, part of it was experimentally based, so it's experimental. A lot of it was pain, but it was just very interesting to try to understand the. There are transmitters that are under, and I think that was a major advance forward to sort of having a, a sense of what might be happening with sort of placebo effects, certainly in pain. But they've done other things in terms of, you know, direct brain recordings and people who have had neurosurgical procedures and, you know, uh, so it's all, that, that's that been very 
I think the, the hardest science, I mean, there are people who are doing imaging as well, but that's a little, that's, it's a little softer in some sense. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not quite as experimental, I guess. Um, and then obviously there's my excellent, I'd like to believe my excellent review paper from a few years ago, as you said, um, just to, if people want to sort of get introduced to the, and more than introduce, really want to understand the state of the science. I mean, it's, I guess it's getting a little old now, but um, I think that was, it's a good starting point. Because from the clinical side, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, confusion about the definitions, and uh, you know, it's not so straightforward saying that this is a placebo effect. Say people say it's a placebo effect, but it may or may not be a placebo effect. It may be a you know natural history effect or a Hawthorne effect, which is just the you know, people just being in clinical study get better just because they're filling out forms and being asked questions and just those social interactions. So there's all sorts of things that can happen that are not what we normally consider placebo effects. Which is something that uh, people often will kind of, uh, who, who haven't really read the material enough, will say, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't really exist. It's just purely a Hawthorne effect, you know, because people are in the study or people thought they were better. And some of the stuff you're referencing, the Benedetti and uh, Luana Coloca, when they did that, uh, the work on the actual neurons and saw that by giving them placebo, uh, Parkinson's, uh, apomorphine drugs, uh, that there was changes in the, the activity of the neurons and the levels of the dopamine. Uh, you know, really as you say, hard, hard science makes it very, very interesting. So yeah, and and and, uh, and uh, we'll reference your paper in the notes of the uh, of this podcast. But it is a, it is a really good paper. It kind of uh, brings together you know the well the current evidence when you wrote it. It's how old is it now? That paper I think it's about. It's getting old. I was just looking at the date. I pulled it out. About <laughs> ten years ago. Um, ten years ago. So so people who are listening to this may not know that. Uh, in science, anything that's 10 years old starts to be questionable whether new information should be included. But it's still a very good representation of kind of what had been going on for the 20 years that pre predates that, which is the kind of which is a very important period for the mind body connection. There was so much research going on and, and still is, but that was a really kind of pivotal point. Fantastic. Um, and you're doing research yourself at the moment. Anything going on for you? I've seen that you've done some some interesting things where you're you're measuring meditation in people during brain surgery. That was pretty. That's uh, quite a full on uh, piece of research. Do you want to just explain that, or maybe some of the other stuff you've been doing? Sure. So, as you can tell, I sort of wander a bit. So it could be said I have attention deficit disorder or something, but I sort of uh, you know I have this. I, I pursue things that are that are interesting, and I've been successful, you know, bringing in you know research money, and I work in an academic center, and so I have some ability to pursue what I think is interesting. And so, the opportunity came up because we were uh, setting up an, uh, the neurosurgeons were setting up an awake craniotomy program. So for tumor resection, uh, the neurosurgeons sometimes do it while people are awake, um, because you can maximize the resection of the tumor by, and not take out sort of critical parts of the brain, you know, that are essential for language, let's say. Uh, so there, was a, there was a case just this week, wasn't there, of a woman having, who was a violinist, and they were taking a, a I don't know if it was a tumor, but they were certainly operating, and she was playing the violin during the actual procedure, <laughs> so they could make sure they didn't knock into the bits of the brain that are responsible for that, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a more major one, and we, we didn't do that, we were, 
for for many uh, for many months, we were asking everybody who was coming in for that procedure whether they were a meditator or not. And so we eventually found somebody who was a meditator, and then we asked them whether they would be willing to do this research. And um, you know, just uh, they spent a few minutes meditating while their brain was exposed in surgery while their tumor was being removed. And um, and that was that was what prompted that um, that particular one. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't earth shattering in any sense. It just sort of confirmed uh, what we were recording from the scalp. But it was. Uh, Obviously, more exciting and more uh, so. That was, uh, and it confirmed what was being recorded from the scalps. And what else are you working on at the moment? I see you do a certain amount of stuff around uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and certainly a lot around um, aging and Alzheimer's. Yeah, so I'm I'm interested in uh, physiologic markers of stress and what uh, and the negative impacts of that stress on function. And so that that covers a lot of territory. That's I'll start with that. Um, so in terms of uh, some of the areas I've studied are partly related to where uh, the the junior faculty or postdocs may be interested in. You know, so one of them was interested in post traumatic stress disorder, which is obviously a very con uh, convenient population to study these kinds of uh, mind body approaches and uh, you know just stress responses. Um, this, again, this is a good example where somebody is exposed to the same event, like a you know a car backfiring, and somebody is sent, thrown back to the war or something like that. They're thinking about their wartime experience, and somebody else just hears a car backfiring and doesn't think anything about it. And so somebody's heart rate is racing, and somebody's you know blood pressure is going up, and somebody doesn't pay any attention. So again, that it's a very convenient population. I shouldn't say convenient. That doesn't sound right. But it was just a um, convenient, was, convenient from a scientific perspective. Yes. Yes, convenient <laughs> from scientific. It's just a, they they clearly are they're, they're wired differently. I mean, they are their brain is wired differently um, as a result of uh, the PTSD, and so you can look at these uh, the signaling within the within the brain that's sort of uh, you know altering their their reactivity. And the mind-body approaches are very good. Are good ways to sort of approach some of these um, sort of system-level failures in some in terms of brain wiring. And so, so that was from the PTSD perspective. And then the uh, you know we're interested in stress in general. So a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff is just related to stress. And so older older adults. Um, experience some level of cognitive decline. Everybody experiences some level of cognitive decline, but it does seem like people who are higher levels of stress have more cognitive decline. And, you know, PTSD can cause cognitive change, but even depression can cause cognitive, you know, it may put you at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And um, so there's just a lot of uh, risk factors for brain degeneration related to stress. So that, you know, we know cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones, you know, impacts the you know the hippocampal size, and you can, which is one of the places that Alzheimer's affects. And so it seems like it's somehow important to try to maximize uh, people's well-being or, or uh, optimize the amount of stress they, they they receive, so they get enough stress or enough novelty in the environment that they're stimulated, but not so much that their hippocampi are shrinking or something. Well, I was uh, talking about the, uh, some research I read. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's kind of interesting. Where the, one of the questions people ask, and it comes back to the thing you were saying about the way brain processes different input, 
uh, all the same input. And it was saying that there seems to be a physiological difference between the response to something that we perceive as a challenge, like an opportunity challenge, and something we, we respond to as a threat, in that there's a different level of, I think it's something about the adrenal cort cortisol relationship, and there's a, an increase in blood pressure with threat and a, a relatively stable blood pressure with challenge. And it's all about how are we perceiving that event. And but your work around um, uh, aging would be very interesting to find out a bit more about. So having kind of studied and looked at it, what would you say are the, the key factors that may have an impact on uh, cognitive decline and, or or vice versa, what things seem to reduce the uh, the effects of cognitive de decline as we get old? What would you be your main pointers? Um, I think one is to sort of be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something about um, having a good, yeah, just some kind of good mental spirits is somehow is beneficial. And uh, depression is is one that clearly is a problem is a problem for the brain. You know, so it's not just you feel bad, you feel bad, and people may even kill themselves. There's obviously a significant health issue. But in addition, there's some longer term effects of the of being depressed on, on brain. And that's, uh, that's this risk factor, as I mentioned, for development of, uh, of dementia, you know, in the longer term. So, in a, you know, people who are, long, you know, history of depression on and off are at a higher risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, additionally, people who are stressed out from like caregiving is another good example where the, um, I was studying dementia caregivers because that was the population I was working with, but these are, they're a very stressed population, and they're also at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's uh, dementia, just like their spouse. So the, the caregiver who's taking care of a spouse with <clears throat> with dementia is actually at higher risk for developing dementia themselves, um, in part related to that excessive stress. So there's something about this excessive stress that's not good. So you have to somehow uh, be, be aware of it, I guess, be aware of uh, the effects of stress on your on your body and have a sense of your your own self so you, you somehow know uh how much how much you can do i guess um and i think you need some level of stress i mean for learning best performances at you know races or the best you know somehow when they're a little stressed and there's, there's something about stress that maximizes performance um you know and certainly in battles they always talk about that you know people can do these amazing feats when they're you know in the heat of battle and they don't feel the pain or whatever so there's something about a, li a little stress that's probably beneficial and the question is from my perspective is optimizing that uh, sort of uh, stress and novelty and figuring out the balancing because uh, hans Selle, who did all the kind of a lot of the early work about the general adaptation syndrome stuff he talks about stress isn't isn't clear enough there's u stress which is like reasonable stress uh, in the same way a tree you know being blown in the wind is quite good for it as long as it, the wind's not too strong and the, and the roots are deep enough and then there's distress which becomes a dysfunctional you know overload or the allostatic load is another kind of term they're using nowadays isn't it like the the total load that our body like a bridge if it has too many trucks rumbling too many times that eventually the the, the structure just falls and that our, our, our bodies and brains suffer. And I think, again, the mind-body connection is, is a very interesting place to look at this because, of course, stress is, you can't measure stress apart from by finding out how, 
what does that feel like to you? You know, or I mean, you can measure cortisol levels, but it is about a perception. How do you feel about this? And as soon as we use the word feel, we're stepping quite far out of, you know, uh, signal A causes condition B. <clears throat> and a lot of the um, the kind of old school approaches to stress, with a lot of them being pharmaceutical, are quite blunt instruments for, for dealing with that kind of stuff. And so that leads us a bit more into these uh, more left field, complementary, integrative alternative approaches uh, what what kind of approaches have you specifically examined for uh, for stress what's the things that you've done the most research on my mo the most research has been sort of uh, classic mind-body approaches which it started with yoga as I said and then and still doing yoga I mean so even taking it to the level of looking at uh, uh, you know uh, CSF and the brain, you know, looking at very sophisticated MR analysis with one of the current postdocs to, um, you know, just conventional yoga intervention for, you know, low back pain. And then, you know, looking at meditation is the one I've done the most because it's actually easier, from a research point of view, it's easier to do a meditation intervention than a yoga intervention. The logistics of a yoga intervention are not insignificant. Um, so just uh, coordinating everybody coming to a class together or whatever you want to do it's just it's it's a uh, uh, it's harder and so we started when I started this actually I was doing meditation in a group setting as the standard meditation classes in a group setting um, you know with dementia caregivers actually and the logistics of that was so hard that we then went to one-on-one -on -one training so we had a you know one of the research assistants with Buddhist by training and she she led the one-on-one -on -one sessions under the Auspices of uh, training with, with a, a you know PhD clinical neuropsychologist who was also a you know long-term meditator, and so that's where we went to the one-on-one approach where we can just schedule them to come in. But then we went online, you know, somebody decided to go digital, and that becomes even easier. But it's it's not quite the same. To get, you need to get the feedback, and so part of my research now is getting better markers of meditation. So to actually, the goal is to provide some kind of feedback to help people learn how to meditate better and there are there are apps out there and I'm, I'm not gonna get into apps that are good or bad I mean I th you know I think they're all um, we'll just call it a little on the simple side at this point and it would be nice but there is likely something that we can record from the person's physiology be it brain waves or you know breathing or whatever it might be that might be able to give people feedback about how well they're meditating so just to improve their, their meditation what is showing up as the best marker at the moment for successful access of meditation? So this is me, we're getting into my my biases here. Just to warn you, I mean, I've <laughs> but it is it is my biases. So we published on some of this, you know. So we did you know machine learning approach and all that. So we published on some of this stuff. But in general, it does seem. I think, uh, I think respiration is probably the best marker. Uh, so there is this. Uh, you know, rhythmic breathing is part of is part of all these, you know, mind-body approaches in some sense, and it's uh, it's a very strong part of, you know, all the, you know, all these traditions, be they you know, yoga or you know, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction or tai chi or you know, all these approaches. Breathing is an important part of it. I'd, I'd like to believe there are, there are measures in the uh, that we can record from the brain itself. You know, from the you know, EEG signals, and we've looked at some of those, and there are clearly some 
changes in the EEG that one can see during uh, meditation. And uh, uh, in the optimal one, I, I think it is going to be pooling these different signals together. And I think some of them are going to be, uh, yeah, I'm just, I think the idea is going to be pooling them together in some sense, um, you know, some kind of multi, uh, multi-modality approach. Um, yeah, that would be very interesting to give people some direct feedback that they are, you know, in the zone that they need to be. I can see how that would be useful. So one of the previous guests we had who was uh, less of a straight scientist, although he's a fascina fascination with Western science, is actually a really experienced yoga teacher. And he's just written a book about the science of, you know, the, the kind of uh, historical science of, of, of yogic philosophy and how it links to the Western science. It might be interesting for you to, to watch his, uh, a guy called Eddie Stern, it might be interesting to, to watch the interview or listen to, or read his book actually. Uh, but yeah, he's he has a particular interest in Western science and and uh, and how those two worlds kind of collide, um, because of course that's what you know meditators are trying to do is trying to get people into those spaces, those states, those neurological activities by you know old uh, roots and journeys. You need to do this. Uh, having some Western position on it might be a real help to people. So as you've kind of traveled along this road, <clears throat> how have people taken it? Have they gone, he's completely lost the plot. What is he thinking about? <laughs> or have you um, generally found an acceptance to uh, your interest in these slightly unusual uh, approaches? So, so I've been doing this for a long time. I said, you know, this is a complementary medicine approach or mind body since 1999 or so. So it's, it's been a while. It's just been uh, it's been interesting. So, um, if I'm walking in both worlds, I, I'm somehow not accepted in either world in some sense. Um, and so, in the you know conventional science perspective, they sort of look down at this complementary medicine, and uh, so that's been an issue. It's more accepted now. So you now, acupuncture is accepted, and you know people do you know, talk about meditation. So in the last five years, I mean, there's definitely more acceptance, but it's been a, it hasn't been so straightforward. And, and in the, uh, and the complementary medicine people, you know, some of them were just opposed to scientific approaches at first, you know, it was like a hard. And then I still remember, I organized a conference about 20 years ago <clears throat> about placebo and I personally thought that these complementary medicine practitioners, clinicians, were doing a great job at maximizing the placebo effect for the health of their patients. For the, and I thought this was, I thought this was a major positive, uh, you know, that somehow or other we need to figure out how to do this. But they saw this as me poo-pooing their field as sort of like, uh, you know, saying that it's not scientific or whatever it might be. And so they were taking it. Uh, a little negatively just because I was giving the label or something or whatever these non-specific healing effects whatever you want to call it but so it's, you know it's been a interesting approach I mean at this point um, yeah I've been successful enough you know in terms of enough publications and all this kind of stuff I can sort of get away with uh, you know doing what I want to do but it's uh, you know in terms of grants you still have to deal with you know you're not quite towing the line one side or the other would you say that there's been a, a growing acceptance? Is there a changing uh, understanding and recognition of uh, mind body and more complementary approaches in the last 20, 30 years? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, so 
you know, some very mainstream conventional medicine place like Sloan Kettering, you know, Cancer Institute, and they they have complementary medicine as part of their treatment options, and um, you know, because people want it as part of the issue. But even places like Kaiser's, uh, which is a major health maintenance organization in the U.S., where they you know they've just decided that it's you know from uh, both from a cost point of view as well as from a uh, set patient satisfaction point of view that it just makes sense to provide some of these services to their you know their clients and so there's been a major you know there's more more acceptance of these approaches even if we don't uh, understand each and every one of them and and some of them may have some of these non-specific uh, beneficial effects um, <clears throat> that may be loosely allied to placebo effects I'm just sort of saying that, that it's not a not necessarily in a bad way. So some of acupuncture may well be, part of it may be placebo effects, but if people are feeling better, then if you don't do anything, it's still better, you know, it's still significantly better. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that's still up in the air, but it is more accepted even in my department, my neurology department, uh, you know, there's more people who do some element of, uh, you know, complementary medicine as part of their practice or even their re research to some degree. It's something that I've been working on both clinically and research for a long time is looking at how can we harness this effect? You know, how can we understand it so we can utilize it rather than kind of get rid of it because it's trouble when it comes to our statistical analysis. It's like, well, clearly something's going on here. People are you know, responding in extraordinary ways, uh, producing, in the case of Parkinson's, you know, producing internal production of dopamine when they couldn't before. How can we switch that on? I think those are really interesting conversations. And also the whole nocebo thing, which is how do we make sure we're not switching off the placebo, the potential placebo effect or possibly even causing damage with throwaway comments or words that we say. So looking at, we spent a lot of time looking at language and helping clinicians to language things in a way that might be more useful than, uh, than sometimes the way it's done. So very interesting times. So what, what do you see is the future uh, of the mind-body connection, complementary alternative integrative practice? Where do you see it going? Well, I think it will be, I think it'll be routinely integrated with clinical care to some degree. As you said, just how you word uh, your interaction with people to not elicit a placebo, a nocebo effect. So one of the issues is when you're, you're giving somebody a new drug, do you list every possible side effect that's in, mm -hmm. you know, and you know they're going to have some of the side effects. These have been these have been very interesting clinical studies, you know, little clinical experiments where they give one group all the possible side effects and one not, and then people who are exposed to all the list of all the side effects are more likely to have those side effects. Yeah. You know, complain about them. It's hard to know how to deal with that information. You don't want to lie to people, but it's hard to know how to do that balance. So I think sorting out the the balance between um, you know of communication, I guess, is the I think that's really important. Um, I'm very aware of it when I talk to my patients. I still see patients uh, half a day a week, and you know, it's I'm very aware of the language. You don't want to you want to maintain some degree of of hope or positive outlook, even if people who have, you know, neurodegenerative disease that we don't have specific treatments for in some ways, you know, the Alzheimer's disease, or, you know, people dealing with cancer, the same thing. You do have to keep a some kind of positive outlook, and it could be self-efficacy, just some element of self-control, you know, some element of control over, over your situation. But I think, 
I think clinicians will be aware of that. So that's an important aspect of this mind-body, uh, you know, field that, that is going to just be integrated to just clinical, you know, routine clinical care. So the next generation of clinicians will just be part of what they do. And in terms of, um, you know, how to, you know, it'll also be part of routine health. I mean, so we're, we've do, we're doing, you know, some of what we're doing is one of the postdocs did an intervention at a local high school, did a mind, mindfulness intervention at a local high school, and it didn't, you know, it didn't turn out so great. I mean, we found out that high school, busy high school students won't do any anything that they're not getting graded for. Um, so they, you know, we, but if it was part of their gym class, their physical education class, you know, they did it and they somehow felt better, but they wouldn't do home practice unless they were, you know, sort of rewarded for it in some sense. Um, but it was, it was still interesting. And I think it's just going to be integrated to, to routine, you know, day to day practices almost a lot of this mind body stuff. And I think that's, that's part of it. So I, um, so that's all good. And I think, you know, how we, the, the future might be, for my end, was thinking about how to optimize the mindfulness, you know, training or the, you know, yoga, whatever it might be. And I know the sense is that there's the, you know, these practices have been around for 2,000 years. And so it's, you know, it's all good. But, you know, my feeling is racism has been around for 2,000 years too. So it's not. <laughs> It's not just because it's around for 2,000 years doesn't mean it's necessarily good. I mean, and obviously these are good practices, but, you know, but there's, they really should be, you know, optimized at this point. So there's no reason, you know, when John Kabat-Zinn came out with his mindfulness-based stress reduction, it was a major advance. And so we had this, you know, course that was, I think, a major plus in terms of, you know, formalizing and we can do these research interventions. But, you know, at this point, it's really way too cumbersome, you know, having this, you know, two-month you know, period that's going to cause a lot of people not to do it. So you do need to sort of, sort of adapt these, uh, you know, these trainings to, you know, what people are currently able to do or what they feel is necessary. And so I think that that improvement in terms of, uh, you know, studies of dose response and just getting a sense of how to maximize the interventions is and, and what populations will most benefit also. There's some people who are probably more likely to benefit from a mind-body intervention than others. Um, and so, yes, I think those are all areas to be researched. And um, yeah, I mean, the intervention that I've uh, been spending a lot of time uh, developing is actually a, a three-day intervention, three consecutive days. So instead of people spending, you say, two months learning some skills within that period of time where they can really see rapid change, uh, particularly to their physiological and emotional state. And we're looking at doing some research comparing that to um, you know, other more standard interventions. And one of the tricky things in the research is comparing like with what like, you know, if you have something that's over a two month period, can you compare it to something that's only three days? Because the, in, the way those interventions are delivered are quite different. And mostly in healthcare, we don't deliver things, you know, in three days we go, we'll see you next week, because that's the the traditional structure of the scheduling and there's a question is just because it's been done that way does that mean that's the most useful way to do it so yeah interesting things out of your um vast experience both in life and research out of all the things you've discovered is there if you were to give a kind of final uh, tip to our listeners in terms of how they can use their mind-body connection or use their brain in the most healthy way what would be the one thing 
you would share with them is from the things you've learned? What's the most useful thing? <laughs> that is one hard question here. <laughs> uh, I think everybody has to be sensitive to their, 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 their own self because I think everybody is different in terms of their needs. You know, I, they're just, you know, some people may need to, you know, just do large amounts of physical activity and some people may be okay doing gaming, you know, communal gaming in some sense, group gaming. And I think it, there's a, there's a big difference in terms of people's needs in terms of their, their brain. And so I think there's not going to be a great answer. So I'd like people to sort of, uh, I guess, try to learn so to be sensitive to their, their own self in terms of their, um, for their reaction to environments and what they sort of do better with and try to, you know, try to, try to, you know, maximize their well-being by doing the stuff they like and, you know, occasionally pushing yourself into areas you, you know, you're not necessarily good at, but not, not to the point where you're stressing yourself out. So this is what I tell my, my, the Alzheimer's patients when I see, you know, there's this, this idea that there's this, you know, mental stimulation that's good for you and it's good for the brain and, you know, but, but if, but if it's given as a homework assignment, it's no longer a positive, you know, so they have to figure out something they like doing and then, and then do it. And I think the mental stimulation, I think is, is good for one's brain, but you do have to, you know, make sure you're, you're, it's, it's good for you. I mean, I, that was another loose answer. That was a loose question, loose answer. Sorry. It makes, it makes perfect sense. I, and it kind of raises interesting questions, I think, in terms of research. Because as we know, research is like a specific intervention. Everybody just gets the same. How do we start to do research into these much more nuanced things like, well, what works for you? What, what, do, you, what do you see as the future of that? So there are some people who have talked about this randomization based on people's preferences and how to structure studies, you know, including in, including in the research design people's preferences, and I think that's that would be useful actually. Um, but again, these are these require a bigger, slightly bigger study because you have you know people with different preferences and they get randomized in different ways and all this. But I think that is the that is an important way to go because I think there are some people, as an example, people with a lot of people with PTSD may not do well in group settings at all, you know, so that, you know, it's, that's a significant problem for them. So putting them into a, some of these people won't even leave their house. So getting into a group setting is not necessarily good for them, but they would be happy to be randomized to an online meditation training, you know, so you have to, you have to somehow take into account people's preferences in terms of how you're doing these things, but but you know, and I, and there is the beginnings of the methodology to do this, but it's it's not standard because it's just a little more bulky, I guess, a little more cumbersome to do these studies. Well, we've got a number of factors, haven't we? We've got, as you say, your preferences instead of just just randomization, randomized depending on what seems to be right, and then we've got all the other factors, like you know, the interaction between the two humans, the one you know, giving giving the intervention, receiving the intervention, taking the data, uh, and there are some you know conversations that the, the the gold standard, the randomized controlled trial, which is great, pretty good anyway for drug you know evaluations, just may not be fit for purpose for. The more complicated uh, stuff that's going on in interactions. 
Um, I guess a final question, seeing as uh, we are in the midst of a coronavirus lockdown, uh, <laughs> um, any thoughts on what we can do to um, improve our health during this strange time? Well, I'll just go backwards a little bit here. So in terms of placebo effects, I do think they're very beneficial, but if you have a significant enough illness, the placebo, you know, these, these health well-being effects aren't going to be helpful. So if you know you have a, um, uh, in my case, I had a, you know, serious bike accident, I had a torn inferior cava. I mean, placebo, you know, placebo would not help. <laughs> I had to get to a hospital and have it be operated on quickly kind of thing. So there is, I just, and, you know, so if you're obviously short of breath from COVID, you just need to solicit the appropriate uh, care. Now, in terms of how to deal with the stress of this COVID, um, that's that's not straightforward. But you just have to again the usual lifestyle things. I mean, pick things that you like doing. Find some time for yourself to do. I mean, I'm still I like biking, so I can still go for my bike rides. I'm not I'm keeping my social distance or whatever. So, um, but I. Um, you know, I, I'm still able to do some of the things that I, I, I like to do. So you do need to be able to proceed that, you know, proceed with what you what you enjoy. Um, these, the, the interactions with people are, are harder, though. I mean, so there's a lot of older adults now that are particularly isolated. They're closing down, you know, uh, senior centers. And, you know, that was where they were getting their – that was where they'd see people and talk to people. And they don't have the technology to do Skype or whatever we're doing. And so they're, they're, you know, that's a major problem for them. So it's uh, hard to know. So if, I think if you have the opportunity to do the, you know, digital interactions and, you know, checking in with <clears throat> friends and family, that's all good. Um, and hopefully hopefully you have all those the technologies to do it, I guess. But, you know, some people are, 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 are at risk there. Yeah, I think it's a really tough thing that, you know, uh, certainly in the UK, they, they're, they're suggesting people over 70 are going to have to self-isolate. And um, they are mostly a group who don't use technology that easily. Uh, it's a shame because technology is an amazing way of, you know, keeping the connection whilst staying virus free. And it's, yeah, it's a tough thing. And I think we all need to think about how we can help people who are going to be most isolated in this time because um, coming back to what you're saying about depression you know we know that loneliness is a real uh, considerable factor to consider in health or lack you know, affects health in a negative way and you know the isolation the stress and the concern probably not going to be great for their immune system so anything we can do to help would be great right, the uk was one step ahead because you decided loneliness was actually a disease entity here or, or a symptom that you actually classified loneliness as a and so that was that was useful because it is a major problem for especially older adults so i think that was uh, useful to think about and again it's just saying that that's going to be a problem that we should be sensitive to at this point oh i should have mentioned there's one other paper and in terms of the 10 year ago paper i should have mentioned there's a much more recent paper about resilience and stress that's much that was in behavioral and brain research i think uh, I can, okay do you want to send me? Do you want to email me the de details, and I'll stick that on the, uh, the yeah, show so I notes as well. Yeah, I'll send you the PDF. That's so you know, it's not as if I stop writing here, but I know the placebo paper. Certainly, it tells you where I'm evolving in terms of my thinking, in terms of the stress and resilience, and so I think that's useful. 
So thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, it's been really interesting talk, talking to you about the various things that you've, the pies that you've had your fingers in over the years. Um, thank you very much. Good to speak to you. Good talking to you too. Thanks for the invite. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe, like it on iTunes, give it a rating as high as you possibly can. And of course, join our newsletter where we'll send you show notes from each of the episodes as uh, we have them uh, by just going to philparker.org forward slash yes, Y-E-S, yes. Okay, guys, see you on the next one.